0: We also began our series last week called, And So It Begins. So we began a new series last week, and it really is about the resurrection power of Christ, not to just remember the resurrection of Jesus 2,000 years ago. That's the foundation of our faith. It's the anchor of our faith. But that resurrection, that story of new life is ours to be lived out right here and right now. And that's exactly what Romans 6 says. Romans 6 says this, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too can live a new life. The resurrection of Christ doesn't just give us the assurance that we will live after death, but it gives us the assurance that we can live a new life right now. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about the resurrected power of Christ so that we can be resurrected from rejection, resurrected from depression, resurrected from addiction, resurrected from suffering, resurrected from disappointment. And today we're going to talk about what it means to be resurrected from failure Resurrected from failure. So, I thought as we begin our subject on failure today, I'm just going to share with you my failures. You ready? You taking notes? Here we go. When I was young, I failed to stand out. I was okay in school and okay at sports and barely okay socially, but never really excelled at anything. So, I felt lost. I just kind of felt like I was living in the shadows there, not really noticed by anybody. I also failed to live up to the expectations of my new faith. I came to faith uh, as a middle school student and was just sort of raised in that 80s youth group, which is a nightmare of expectations and rules and regulations, and here's what to do and here's what not to do, and I never felt like I was good enough. I, I, I tried and I tried, but I just never lived up to those 80s youth group expectations of all the things you have to do for God and be sold out and all in and hardcore and do daily devotions and keep away from all these nasty things, including secular music and movies. And I mean, I, you just could never live up to it, right? So I never had the assurance that I was really accepted by God and never had the assurance that if I died, I would go to heaven. I didn't think I was good enough. I didn't make it in high school sports. There were 200 people in my high school, and I didn't make it in high school sports. Pretty bad. I failed to get a second date with a girl I liked. That first date was terrible. I don't blame her. To this day, I've told her, I I forgive you. I forgive you. I failed to get the youth pastor job here at Rancho the first time I applied. I failed to get the youth pastor job here at Rancho the second time I applied. Finally, they said, enough is enough. (laughs) All right. We know you're not going to go away, so here's your job. I failed to keep a construction company going through the recession of the early 90s. I failed to finish my graduate education. I failed in my first three years of parenting to kind of balance that you know new parenting. We had you know twins, three kids, workload, marriage, kid life balance, that whole thing. I failed miserably at that. I had to totally rebuild my life when my uh, oldest daughter was three. Even today, I can look at some things about my life and about the ministry here that are going well, but there are some things that I can, you know, kind of see in the landscape of my mind, the way I wanted things to be that aren't the way I envisioned them to be. And so this idea of failure is something that's alive and well, and I have quite a list. And I didn't share everything. I'm keeping some things a little secret, right? (laughs) Now, fortunately, I'm not alone in a very long list of people who have failed, There's all kinds of different failures. There are personal failures. Uh, One of the most famous personal failures, if you're a sports fan, is this guy right here, 2003 Steve Bartman. The Chicago Cubs were in the playoffs. They never made the playoffs, since like 1945. They finally made the playoffs. This is game one, and and they're ahead in the eighth inning, Um, hit a foul ball, opposing team hits a foul ball. It's catchable, but Steve Bartman gets in the way and did not make the catch, and the Cubs lost that game. The crowd went crazy on him. 60,000 people went crazy on him. He had to be escorted out by security. No joke, if you know the story, he was the most hated man in Chicago for 13 years. Seriously, he had to go into hiding, awful. Then there's Cliff Herring. You may not know Cliff Herring. He has the wonderful distinction of being the high school coach that cut Michael Jordan from his basketball team. He lived with that his entire life. Then there are business failures. Some of them are very, very famous. Excite, the tech company, could have purchased Google for one million dollars. They chose to pass. Daimler-Benz lost 20 billion on the Chrysler deal. Xerox has this great research company. They poured tons of money into this research company that came up with tons of products, including the Alto. The first personal computer was invented by Xerox. It's a functioning computer. It had Ethernet. It had connections. It had a mouse. It had a lot of things that are still in computers today. But they decided, no, we're not going to deal with that. We're making some copies, making copies. And they did nothing with it. Blockbuster turned down an offer to buy Netflix because it would impact their brick and mortar video rentals. And it did impact their video rentals. One of the most famous, and my personal favorite corporate failures, is the wow Frito-Lay chips. Olestra was a new molecule that tasted like fat, but the molecule was too big to be absorbed by the body, so this greasy stuff just went right through you. And I'm not gonna get into the gruesome details, but it actually went to market and the entire world. Anyway. (laughs) There are governmental failures. Many, many governmental failures. The Great Recession of 2008 through 2012 was widely considered to be the result of policy failures. Hurricane Katrina response, an absolute disaster. The Gulf oil spill, one of the worst uh, environmental disasters. Man-made mistakes. The Iraq weapons of mass destruction, miss. There were none. Benghazi. Uh, was a terrible uh, failure of government. Veterans health care continues to be a terrible failure of government. So there are personal failures, business failures, governmental failures. Let's talk about political failures. No, let's not do that. Every time I mention (laughs) anybody, I get like hate mail and got to bring in security. It's just not even worth it. Now, most failures are unintentional. They're unintentional. We just make mistakes. We're human beings. Nobody's perfect. We just make mistakes, and, and there's some consequence to that. But the deepest consequences come through intentional failures. When we know what we're doing and we hurt somebody. We know what we're doing and we hurt somebody. It's intentional. We say things intentionally that hurt people, usually the ones we love the most. We do things that hurt people, again, usually the ones we love the most. We can do some serious damage, cheating on spouses, choosing other priorities over our own children, committing crimes, destroying relationships by getting deeper into alcohol or drugs. These are intentional decisions that we make kind of based on our natural desires, our natural bent, but we make the choices to go down these dark holes of failure and people get hurt. Now, every single one of us fails unintentionally and intentionally. And it would be fun to hear your list of failures today, wouldn't it? Anybody want to volunteer? We all fail. That's why the Bible makes it very clear in one of the most famous passages in all of Scripture, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That might be a familiar passage to a lot of you. All have sinned. Now, that word sin is just one of those weird religious terms. And it's really, in the original language, not that weird. It's a very common word in the Greek called hamartano, hamartano. And it simply means to miss or to wander from the path. Here's a straight path and you wander. It's a mistake. It's a sin. It's an error. Whether unintentionally or intentionally, every single one of us misses. Every single one of us wanders from the path. And the reality is, as a human being, failure is part of the deal. Failure is just part of the deal. Every one of us is imperfect. Every one of us is broken. Every one of us fails intentionally and unintentionally then we can look to the Bible. The Bible makes it very clear that even the heroes of our faith, the men and women that built our faith, still were prone to fail. I gave you this list back in early January. I'm sure you remember every line of it, but these are, the, these are the, some of the examples of the failures in the Bible. Adam and Eve, who represent humanity, utterly failed. Noah was a drunk. Abraham had a mistress. Sarah gave her husband to another woman. Lot surrounded himself with evil. Jacob was a lying schemer. Rachel was a thief. Moses murdered. Aaron built an idol in disobedience. Miriam was a gossip. Eli was arguably the worst parent in the Bible. David had an affair, then murdered, was a terrible father. Dozens of the 150 songs recorded in the Bible questioned God. Ecclesiastes, a book we studied just recently, is a book of depressive doubt. Solomon had more than 1,000 sex partners. Jonah ran from God. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah burned out. John the Baptist was a homeless eccentric. Matthew was corrupt and stole from his own people. John was self-righteous, Martha was stressed and anxious, Peter was a coward with a hot temper, the disciples ran away at night at Jesus' arrest, Thomas doubted, John Mark failed in ministry, the Apostle Paul who wrote half the New Testament was a murderer. The Bible's very honest about failures. And so considering the fact that all of us fail, the Bible is filled with accounts of failures, I think it's time for us to really learn how to deal with our own failures. So what do we do from here? What do we do with our failures? Well, I think it's good for us to look at arguably the greatest failure of the Bible, and that would be the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was the greatest failure of the Bible. Now, I'm not putting that on him. He put that on himself. He called himself the chief of sinners. So I'm just taking him at his word, right? He called himself the chief of sinners. In Galatians 1 and 2, he talks about his own list of failures and how he's dealt with that, and I think it's good for us to take a look. The Apostle Paul, the chief of sinners began with this very important first step, to own our failures, to own our failures. This is the first step, we've gotta own our failures. Galatians 1.13, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, this religious Judaism, high you know, church, high rules, high regulations. It was uh, you know based on the Old Testament law, the books of Moses, right? He had a way of life in judaism and how intensely he persecuted the church of god and tried to destroy it this is the apostle paul he's owning his failures he was a religious man obsessed with the law he thought that god wanted obedience to the law now here comes jesus and jesus redefines the law and says all you need to worry about is love i am fulfilling the law you worry about love well the apostle paul considered that to be a threat The apostle Paul was part of the religious leadership that said Jesus is actually speaking and working from the devil, he must be stopped. So the apostle Paul's assignment was to go persecute the church. In fact, he was there at the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church. The apostle Paul was there leading the stoning of Stephen. He sought the church, hunted the church down, persecuted the leaders, sought to kill them. He says, I was advancing in Judaism, beyond many of my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. He was a zealot. So what does he do? He owns his failures, and he lists his failures to let the whole world know, listen, I have the humility to know when I have blown it. And so we too, I think, need to get used to this idea of owning our failures. We need to get used to saying things like this. It's on me. It's my fault. I'm responsible and I'm sorry. This is very difficult for us. It's very difficult for us to own our own failures. Our natural tendency is to blame others, our natural tendency is to shift that blame, to get that failure off of us, because we don't wanna be known as a failure, we don't wanna be humiliated by our failures, we wanna put up sort of this front that I know what I'm talking about, and I'm right, and I do things well, and so when we fail, we just wanna push it off to somebody else. And even when we're caught failing, it's like, okay, no way out of it. You failed. We say stupid things like this. Ready? Yeah, I know I blew it, but you made me do it. I know I blew it, but if you didn't, and we immediately say, yeah, I'm owning my failure, but not really, it's you who made me do it. It's like, um, you know, when Adam was caught eating the fruit in the garden, uh, the woman you gave me, God, made me do it. So he's not only blaming the woman, he's blaming God, you gave her to me. We do it all the time, it's human nature. Human nature. Or we say something like, yeah I blew it, but don't forget the thing you did seven years ago. Right? We remind other people of their mistakes, it makes us feel better about our mistake. Or we say this, and this is super cheesy. Yeah, I made a mistake but nobody's perfect. Like, oh, come on, really? That's not owning our mistakes. Or we say the worst of all deflections. I'm sorry you were hurt. Ooh, that's terrible. I'm sorry you were hurt. I'm not sorry I hurt you, I'm sorry you were hurt. You see how condescending that is? We don't take any responsibility. Now listen, every one of us has said every one of these things. Because we don't wanna own our failures. If we own our failures, people are gonna know that we're not perfect as though that was a secret. We have so much trouble owning our failures. So we're going to start right now, right? A little exercise. We're going to start with just one of the most flippant ways to own our failures, right? But it's at least a start. My bad. Okay, we're going to say this all together. We're going to to say my bad together just to kind of get, get it started. On the count of three, ready? One, two, three. My bad. Most of you did that. A couple of you over here. We can do it. And it's actually very freeing. I remember uh, I was probably in my mid-20s, and I was like the Apostle Paul, kind of young and zealous, right? And, and I didn't want anybody to know that I had any chinks in this armor, right? Uh, I wanted to be correct. I wanted to be, you know, known as a good leader, making the right decisions, having the right opinions. And then I was judging everybody else, right? Everybody else is making all these mistakes, but I wanted to present myself as somebody who had it all together, And I got in in some trouble because I was not owning my failures. I wasn't owning my failures at home, wasn't owning them here at work. And frankly, it's annoying, right? And it just doubles down on trouble because not only are we all prone to fail, but if we deny that failure or start blaming other people or, or somehow shove responsibility out, now we're just increasing the hurt. And I will never forget the first time I just decided to not defend myself and to just say I'm sorry and to totally own it. And it, I'm telling you, it was one of the greatest feelings I've ever had. Now, in my head, it was full of defenses. In my head, it was a full, of, yeah, you did this and they did this and you made me do it and everybody fails and nobody's perfect. All these things that were in my head that are in all of our heads. But what I actually said was, I'm sorry and I blew it. Will you forgive me? And I'm telling you, just those words falling out of my face was so freeing. It's like, wow, I had a choice there. I could go on a whole rabbit trail of blaming and defending and arguing, which would have just made everything worse, or to just say, you know what, I blew it. And it really doesn't matter who else was kind of in the mix of that particular failure. I blew it, and I just need to own that failure. So resurrecting from failure requires first that we own that failure, we have to. Secondly, embrace God's grace. When we own our failures, what the Bible calls confession, we confess our sins, then we get to embrace God's grace. We get to embrace God's grace. Here's a truth that is profound and it's changing the world even as we speak, that we are forgiven. We are forgiven. This is why we gather every Sunday right here to just embrace that reality. We're forgiven. God loves us so much he forgave us in Christ. Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. We are free from the penalty, the consequence, the judgment of our failures, because the judgment of our failures was placed on Jesus Christ who paid the price in full. We are forgiven. You might recall what we just talked about in Romans three. Romans three says, all have sinned that harm our Tano and fall short of the glory of God. But that verse continues. And all are justified, which means made right or forgiven. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. This is why we gather. This is what gives life to our souls. This is what can begin to really free us from being defined by our failures, that idea that we are forgiven. And the Apostle Paul knew that. In Galatians chapter 1, immediately after he owns his own sin, he says this in Galatians 1.15, but God set me apart and called me by his grace. Paul says, I know I have done terrible things. I rejected Christ. He was part of the whole religious leadership that, that got Jesus crucified, and then he went hard after, after, uh, at the church and hunting them down and having them arrested and having them killed. After he confesses all that, he says, but God set me apart and called me by his grace. The Apostle Paul embraced the grace of God. But embracing the grace of God is only half the story. We can believe that Jesus paid the price for our sin, and we can believe that God forgives us, but there's another thing that I think is even harder to do. Simply this, receiving the freely given grace of God allows us to forgive ourselves. Now, forgiving ourselves is kind of a kind of a cliche. What does that really mean? But it's... It simply means that we don't, we don't condemn ourselves for our failures. So many people live with a condemnation of their own failures. They might know and believe that God forgave them through Jesus Christ, but they carry that failure so intensely. They continue to punish themselves because they know they deserve it. I've made a mistake. I've hurt somebody, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue to punish myself because I deserve it. It can be haunting. It can be paralyzing. It can be defining for us. It can be this heavy weight. We have failed before God, before others. We've hurt others, and we're carrying that, and we don't want to get rid of it, because we deserve to feel guilt, and we deserve to feel shame. But in Christ, we have to forgive ourselves. We really do, and it simply means this, to see ourselves the way God sees us. How does God see us? God does not see us by our failure. God does not define us by our failure. He looks at us as perfect, unblemished. He looks at us as his perfect son, as his perfect daughter. The the death of Christ is so complete, it's so uh, sure to forgive our sin, that when God looks upon us, he sees nothing but purity. He sees nothing but righteousness. He sees nothing but blamelessness. Ephesians chapter one makes that very clear. So forgiving ourselves means that we see ourselves the way God sees us, that we're not defined by our failure, and to treat ourselves the way God treats us. God pours out, according to Ephesians 1, every spiritual blessing. He pours out love. He pours out grace. He pours out forgiveness. He pours out eternal life. God is for us, right, always for us, no matter what we've done. But sometimes that guilt and that shame is so burdensome on us, we don't think we deserve that kind of goodness. We don't think we deserve a good life and so we punish ourselves with guilt and shame. And so the resurrection of Christ and resurrecting from failure means that we receive God's grace. Not only owning our failure, but receiving God's grace, more importantly. Third, resurrecting from failure means to learn the lessons of that failure. The Apostle Paul owns his failure, he receives God's grace, and then he says, I'm spending years learning lessons from my failures. And so he details in Galatians 1:18 and 19, all that he has seen and done to, to learn his lessons and to repair relationships. He says, I went to Arabia and Damascus for three years to learn from the Christian church. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, a leader there. He stayed with him 15 days. I also saw James. Now, James is like the Pope of Jerusalem, right? He's the man, the brother of Jesus, right? This is James the Great. The Apostle Paul, who sought James's death, by the way, Now submits himself to James and says, teach me. Teach me about the Lord Jesus Christ. Teach me about forgiveness. I want to learn the lessons from my mistakes, and I want to be changed by Him." Paul was making the rounds to everybody, rebuilding trust, and, and, and seeking out the people that he sought to destroy, submitting himself to them and saying, teach me, correct me. I want this new life that learns lessons from my failures. One of the things I love to do around here, in fact, it is like my number one addiction here at Rancho, is to come alongside people who have failed. And when I meet with somebody for the first time and they say, "Uh, Pastor, I have blown it, I kind of get giddy. Like, ooh, this is going to be good. And the worse the failure, the better for me because I am just excited about what God is going to do in that person's life. They're, they're coming to us to own their failures, which is a great first step, and then we get to share with them the unmitigated, unconditional grace of God through Jesus Christ, and that begins a journey of freedom. And then to walk with them, to learn from those mistakes, and, and to rebuild their lives, I'm telling you, it is so much fun. And the worse, the better for me, because I love putting the pieces together from failure to say, let's rebuild, let's rebuild relationships, let's rebuild trust, let's rebuild connections. If there's a marriage that's been blown apart by infidelity, is there a way to put it together? There may not be, but if there is, let's put this together. Uh, is, are there estranged relationships between parents and children, and is there a way to put this together? if somebody has just gotten themselves into addiction up to here and they are just completely owned by substances to be able to say, we're going to walk with you and learn together and rebuild life. If they're coming with a a criminal record the size of my arm, let's rebuild this life, learning from our mistakes and moving on in God's grace. There's a great song by Switchfoot, very famous. It's been around for 20 years now. Uh, It's called, I Dare You to Move. Move. I dare you to move. And it's about moving on from failure and learning the lessons from failure. It says, I dare you to move. I dare you to move. I dare you to lift yourself up off the floor. I dare you to move. I dare you to move. Like today never happened. Like that failure never happened. And here's the punchline of the song Maybe redemption has stories to tell. God wants to tell a story through our failure. We all fail. It's nothing new. We're not alone. We all fail. Fail Now God wants to build a story, tell a story through our failure and that maybe forgiveness is right where you fell. We don't have to earn our forgiveness. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to square our lives away again. We don't have to get our lives right to earn God's love for us. We are forgiven right where we fall. We are never not forgiven. Sounds like the crudes. We're never not forgiven, right? We are always in a state of where God forgives us of everything we've done and everything we will do. We are never not forgiven. In the middle of a sin against God, in the middle of a failure, we are never separated from him. He never turns his back on us. He loves us and he's there for us. Man, I forgive you. I forgive you right here and right now. I have never not forgiven you. Own that failure. Embrace my grace. Now let's learn from that failure. So resurrecting from failure requires learning from our failure. And then fourth and finally, it involves boldly moving forward, boldly moving forward. The Apostle Paul understood that, that despite the reality that he's the chief of sinners, hunting down and persecuting and killing Christians, that there's a way for him to move forward by God's grace. Galatians one twenty three. people began to say about Paul, the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God. When somebody has a story to tell, they failed, maybe they failed publicly, and they've owned that failure, and they've embraced God's forgiveness, and they've learned from those mistakes, and then they boldly move forward. That is a story to tell. And we've had pastors here that have made very public um, indiscretions, could be sexual, could be criminal. Over the course of 50 years, we're about to celebrate our 50th anniversary, we have some stories to tell of some pastors who have blown it, and that's usually a very public thing. And to be able to walk with them in grace and to rebuild marriages after infidelity, the stories that are told of God's grace rebuilding lives, rebuilding relationships, and and having people move on to become announcers of God's grace to the world, it is absolutely incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And God is praised as a result. That's why Galatians 2.20 is written. Galatians 2.20 is written in the context of the Apostle Paul's failure and and his journey through failure. And it's a very famous verse. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. That past, those failures, are dead. They're crucified with Christ. I'm no longer defined by my failures. That's the whole context of this passage. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We have a new life in Christ. We are resurrecting in Christ. Now, I want to be very clear. There is really no such thing, in my little humble opinion, as deliverance. You don't just say a prayer and all mistakes are in the past and we're never going to make a mistake again. No, we are human beings. None of us have arrived. As the Apostle Paul says, we keep pressing on. We keep pressing on. So it's not about arriving to a point of sinlessness. That will never happen, really. It's a journey forward, a journey boldly moving forward, not defined by our mistakes, owning those mistakes, learning from those mistakes, embracing God's grace, but keep Moving forward. We have a whole new life lived by faith. Faith that we're forgiven by God in Jesus Christ. If you ever bear the weight of guilt or shame, look to a cross. could be a, a cross on a piece of jewelry. Drive by this campus and look at the cross. Make a cross. The cross, the cross proves that there is nothing that separates us from God. The cross proves that we're forgiven. Our new life of faith understands that we're forgiven in Christ. There's nothing that condemns us. A new life of faith says we're not defined by our failures. And I can be forgiven by God and I can forgive myself and I can move forward. A new life of faith means that we can live a new life, not live for ourselves, but lived for the betterment of others, to be lived as a story told of God's grace through failure. So resurrecting from failure requires boldly moving forward, boldly moving forward remember Steve Bartman, the fan who interfered with the foul ball in 2003? His life, no joke, was a living hell. And if you know anything about Chicago sports, that will be obvious to you. Interfering with one foul ball made his life a living hell. He had to go into hiding, no kidding. He got death threats, no kidding. It's insane. Thirteen years later, the Cubs won the World Series, and the owners of the Cubs awarded him a World Series ring with his name on it. The owners of the Cubs knew this had to stop. This is insane. This poor guy made a mistake in a split second that maybe contributed to losing one stupid baseball game, and they lost every other game on their own without Bartman. But the owners of the Cubs had to put an end to defining his life by this mistake. They gave him a World Series ring. Bartman said in response, I am very aware that I did nothing to deserve this ring, but I'm happy to be reunited with the Cubs family again. To me, that's just such a beautiful human expression of resurrecting through failure. Resurrecting through failure. We make mistakes. We all do. Let's stop fighting that reality and start walking the same journey that the Apostle Paul walked. Just own our failures. My bad, my fault. I'm sorry. I will try to do better. I made a mistake. And then to embrace God's grace so thoroughly that we not only believe we're forgiven by God, but we can forgive ourselves and not define ourselves by our failures. We can learn from those mistakes in a healthy and in a mature way, and we can keep moving forward, living a good life, telling the story of God's grace. I hope for many of you today who might have come in here very much aware of your own failure that you would leave here very much free from being defined by that failure and free to live a new resurrected life in Christ. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you every week for the gift of your love, your mercy, and your grace through Jesus Christ. Thank you for last Sunday, that Easter message that the death of Christ Bore our sin, bore our our failure upon the cross, and he paid for it in full. In your eyes, we are perfect, sinless, holy, blameless. We are dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father. We are free from being defined by our failures because Jesus Christ took the penalty of those failures. God, help us to, to be free enough in that to forgive ourselves, to not define ourselves by our failures but that we would treat ourselves and view ourselves the way you treat us and the way you view us. Dearly loved children of God, help us to own where we fail. Help us to embrace your grace. Help us to learn from those mistakes and help us to move forward, to live a life that tells the wonderful story of your mercy in our lives, that lives a life for your glory and the betterment of others, that doesn't live a life defending ourselves and for ourselves, but lives a life to honor you, to be loved by you, and to love others with the love of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.